Good evening. Thanks for coming to join us for Bible study tonight. As I was reading through the book of Philippians, of course we started this last week and uh, <clears throat> probably we're only going to have last week and tonight digging into that book. And so I, I, like you, I've been reading through Philippians a couple of weeks now. And as, as I was reading through the book of Philippians, I, I came to the, real, to the realization uh, or I struck by the fact that how the gospel links people who have nothing in common. When you read through the book, if you begin to think about the people who started that church and the people who were in the church, it's very interesting how the gospel links people together who have nothing in common. Let's, let's rehearse a little bit, see if you can remember Acts chapter 16. You can turn there if you need to, uh, but maybe you can remember uh, there were basically three people who were involved, uh, kind of the core members in that, that first church plant there in Philippi. Uh, do you remember who some of those church core members were? Lydia. Who was Lydia? Lydia was, a, the Bible says, a dealer in purple cloth. She's from the city of Thyatira, so she was not somebody who grew up in Philippi. Uh, so she, she probably had moved there for business purposes, this is the speculation. So you have Lydia, a, probably a successful, maybe even we would say a wealthy businesswoman who had moved into the city of Philippi. And then there was somebody else in that group. Who, who was the next one in Acts 16 that's mentioned? Before the jailer, there was another one. Slave girl, what was her situation? She was demon-possessed, remember? She was a demon-possessed slave girl, uh, freed from that possession when Paul spoke to her in the name of Jesus. And so she's quite different, wouldn't you say? She's quite different from Lydia, the one who was the, the businesswoman who moved into the area. Uh, and then, who else was the one that you mentioned, Pam? Who, who was it again? Yeah, so the Roman centurion, the Roman jailer, again, quite different from Lydia and the, and the probably teenage slave girl. So here you have three very different people who, who have, from all practical purposes, absolutely nothing in common except Jesus. And the thing that bound them together, the thing that brought them together, the thing that held them together was their relationship with Jesus Christ. You find if you start digging into the book of, of Philippians. You find certain people named in that book. And, and again it doesn't appear that they have very much of uh, if anything in common. We, you have a man mentioned in the book in chapter 2 named Epaphroditus. Who was a fellow worker with Paul. He was a traveling minister if you will. Quite different from Lydia and the slave girl and the Roman jailer. You have two ladies mentioned in chapter 4. Eudia and Syntyche or Euodia and Syntyche, uh, the only thing we know about them is that they couldn't get along with one another. They, they fussed, and, fall, uh, fussed and, and were fighting with one another. Uh, but, but we don't see that they were like Lydia. They probably weren't you know, business women. They were just women who were leaders in the church, a little bit different from Lydia. And, and then Clement, we don't know anything about Clement. He's mentioned in chapter 4. Uh, my, my point is simply this. There's no obvious links between any of these individuals 
And the thing that binds them together is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. If you think about it, that's true in our church too. You've got some people you have things in common with. You've got some, some people in this church, it's like, well, we're in the same age, or we, we, we do the same kind of job, or we live in the same neighborhood, or something like that. But the vast majority of the people in our church, you really have very little in common with everybody. Would you agree with that? Vast majority, you're different from the people around you. And yet, these people are very dear to you, and you have one thing in common, that is Jesus Christ. And what fascinates me is when I go to the mission field, especially when I go on an international mission trip, and I meet somebody for the very first time I've never met before, they're in a different country, yet they are a a brother or sister in Christ, and instantly there's a connection. Instantly there's a relationship. You guys have been to Costa Rica. You, you know what it's like when you go to Costa Rica and you meet somebody, you meet somebody who, who's, who's a Christian and all of a sudden it feels like, man, this is more than just a good guy. I feel connected to this guy or to this lady. And you don't have a whole lot in common. We would go to Costa Rica, uh, and I'm just thinking about them because Brad and Don are down front, but you'd go to Costa Rica and economically, socially, educationally, all of those kind of things, we're from America, we're from a totally different country, we got nothing in common. And yet there's some, some very dear, close relationships that we had there, and it was because the one thing we did have in common mattered the most, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to, I know I, I've hit that nail several times, but I want you to understand the power of the gospel power of the gospel to bring people together who normally wouldn't be together but if you think about even the disciples of Jesus you see that same thing played out in the disciples of Jesus if you study those 12 these are some 12 very different kind of guys I mean, you have Matthew, the tax collector, and you have the zealot who hated the Romans and, and would like to put a knife in the back of the Romans and here you got a tax collector working for the Romans. Uh, you got these guys who are fishermen, and you, and you got these guys who weren't, we don't even know what they did. And, and, and one of the reasons that there was sometimes this is when, you, when you're reading Peter and John, and, or James and John, and, and they're wanting positions of authority, and, and there's this fuss on the last night about who's the greatest and all that kind of thing. It's because they didn't have a whole lot in common, except for Jesus. Let's not ever get away from the fact that Jesus Christ is the glue that holds us together. He's the reason we have a church. He is not only the head of the church, he's the reason we have a church. And all God's people said, amen. So, we come to the book of Philippians, which is more than just a book. It's a letter to a church. A letter to a church that Paul helped to start. And, and what I want to do tonight is kind of walk through about five different things related to how this letter came about. And as we do that, we're actually going to be studying parts of the letter tonight. But why is it that Paul wrote this letter? Now, you could say, well, he wrote the letter because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I would agree with you. I would not argue with you on that point, Paul wrote the letter because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yes. 
But what was the occasion to bring that about? What prompted Paul to sit down while he was in a prison cell, put pen to paper, and write a letter to the church at Philippi? Because if we can understand what prompted him to write that letter, then we can have a better understanding of what the letter is all about and how it applies to us. So I want to give you tonight about five or so, depending on how much time we have, uh, five or six reasons why Paul wrote this letter. What led Paul to write this letter? So if you're taking notes, that's what, that's what we're going to be focusing on. And again, we'll, we'll get into the letter itself as we try to answer that question. Here's the first thing, the first occasion for the letter, the first thing that prompted Paul to write the letter. Philippians was a thank you note from a missionary to a supporting church. One of the primary things that prompted him to sit down and write the church family in Philippi was he was writing a thank you note. A thank you note to a supporting church, which is not very different from what happens in today's world. Time to time we get thank you, except today we probably don't get a thank you note. Today we get an email or we get a text. But, but our church planners from time to time will write to us and thank us for this or that and the support and all that kind of thing. And the same thing happened in the first century. And so Paul writes this letter. He thanks the Philippians for their ongoing support and for their recent gift. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look in chapter 1, verse 3. By the way, I think I've said this last time, but I need to make sure I say it. Philippians is the most personal letter that Paul wrote. He wrote a letter to friends. He, he was writing a personal letter, transparent, opens his heart, and really is a very, very personal letter to his friends at Philippi. So here's what he writes. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, not only did you partner with me when I first showed up in Philippi, the partnership in the gospel, that's what he meant by the first day that when I first showed up and I went to the riverbank uh, there in Philippi and God began to do a work. He said, but you've been with me, you've partnered with me from the first day until now. When's now? Well, now is when he's in prison in Rome. Several years later, Paul, Paul said, you've been partnering, you've been a supporting congregation, you've supported me from the very first day until now. Let's, let's keep reading and see what he says. <clears throat> being, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 7, it is, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. That is, you're all a part of this. What God is doing and has been doing, you all are a part of this. So he's talking there in the first chapter about their ongoing support, their ongoing relationship. But when we come to the last chapter, chapter 4, he's talking about a recent gift. So this is a thank you for a recent gift. Chapter 4 beginning in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you, you had no opportunity to show it. 
Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good, look what he says, yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. That is, you were the only supporting church I had. You were the only church that cared about me, believed in me, and supported the work that I was doing. Verse 16, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid, translation, financial contribution. You sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. And I've received full payment and even more, and I'm amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts... Notice that's plural. He doesn't say that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent me. He said, I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts, plural, you sent me. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To God and Father, to, to our God and Father be glory forever and forever. Amen. So Paul sits down to write this congregation for being so generous. He sits down to thank them for their generosity, for their support, for not just, <clears throat> not just for being there in the beginning, but being with him through the whole time, and most importantly, for, the, for the, uh, the gift or gifts, really, that they sent to him through Epaphroditus. I, I'm, when he says gifts, I think he has in mind here that many different people were involved in providing what they gave Paul. And so <clears throat> Epaphroditus was the one who carried it to him. So what caused Paul to write this letter? One of the reasons was he, he wrote basically a thank you to the church for their support. Number two, <clears throat> it gets a little heavier now. The second reason Paul wrote this letter, he wrote to warn the church that they likely will have to suffer for their faith. Just as Christ suffered, and just as Paul is now suffering in jail in Rome, he writes to the church at Philippi to say, don't be surprised if the same thing happens to you. Don't be surprised. Look in chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 27. He says, whatever happens, that is, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being, without being what? What's that next word? Frightened without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Paul recognized that there was opposition in Philippi, and they would experience opposition. And he wanted them to understand, this is normal. You're going to experience opposition. Christ experienced opposition. Paul says, I am experiencing opposition. I'm in prison for it. And church, be prepared. 
you're going to experience opposition as well. Now, before I get any further, do you think it's possible that in your lifetime and in my lifetime, our church could experience opposition for the faith? Absolutely. It is amazing to me how quickly that is accelerating. I, I, it's just, just amazing. I, I'm not talking one side or the other. I just, I don't even know the guy's name, but one of the candidates, uh, the Democratic candidates, was asked uh, about the whether churches should have their financial uh, tax status revoked. And he, his basic response was, "Absolutely, it should be the the, you know, it should be revoked because if if they don't believe in the the agenda of this group, then they shouldn't be rewarded. And he's talking about that the churches need to bow down to the, to the agenda of, of other radical groups. And uh, I, I don't want to get into all that mess right now. That's not the purpose of this. My, my point is simply this. I think in our lifetime, we are quickly accelerating to the point the church will experience persecution in some form in the United States of America. I really, truly believe it's coming. Uh, when I was growing up, I used to hear that all the time. And I would basically say, well, maybe so, but not in my lifetime. That'll be two or three lifetimes away. I believe it's coming in our lifetime. And it is accelerating quickly. Now, listen to me. I'm, I'm not going to get off on that. I just want you to hear this. That's normal Christianity. We've had the privilege of living in a country where we've had freedom of religion. There's lots of places in the world where they've never known that. They've always had persecution. They've always experienced persecution for their faith. They, that's, that's normal Christianity for them is persecution. And it may be that eventually that blanket of security we have enjoyed may be removed. But that's normal Christianity. Paul says, Jesus experienced persecution. I'm experiencing persecution here in prison. And church in Philippi, do not be surprised if you have to experience persecution as well. Let's go on and see what he says about this. Um, we're in chapter 1. He said in verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to do what? Suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says, you need to understand. Here's a pastor writing to his congregation saying, you need to understand. You are going to suffer the same kind of struggle that I have struggled with. Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And that day is coming for us as well. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Do you believe that? 
All right, so let's go on to number three, the third reason Paul sat down to, wrote this, to write this letter. He wrote to encourage the congregation to stay united and to have the mind of Christ. We go on to chapter two now, where he encourages the whole congregation to stay united. Chapter two, verse one. And if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And watch how he describes like-mindedness. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then, in case you, you say, well, what does that mean, Paul? How do we do that? He gets very practical in verse 3 and, and 4. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition... Or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, why do you suppose Paul was saying this? I think it's because so many of them weren't living this. He felt like he had to address it. Later in the book, when you get to chapter 4, he talks about these two ladies that are fighting with one another. Later in the book, he, he talks about Timothy. He says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And he says, I don't have anybody quite like him because everybody else is concerned with their own interest. Everybody else is focused on their own deal. But Timothy, Timothy, he, he's one that's committed to Christ. He's committed to the gospel. And, and so, so Paul says, I need to make sure that you as a church family stay united, and have the mind of Christ. And he, that's why he says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That if you need a model, here, here it is, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found or being made in likeness, human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every, name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, most scholars believe that probably was an early song or a song of the early church. It was actually a song that they sang about the mind of Christ. So Paul writes to this congregation that has the potential to be divided. He understands that there are two prominent ladies in the church family that are not getting along. And he understands also not only those two prominent ladies are not getting along, but there seems to be this feeling permeating the congregation that everybody's kind of have their own deal. They kind of have their own interests. They're not thinking about having the mind of Christ and staying together for the gospel. They're, they're starting to get a little fractured. Now Paul says, no, no, no. Don't let this divide you. Stay united in the work of Christ. And then, boy, this is where it really gets amazing. In chapter 3, Paul, this, another reason Paul wrote, number 4, Paul encouraged the church to follow his example. He wrote this letter and encouraged the church to follow his example. In chapter 3, Verse 17, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. 
join with others in following my example. In the, in the Greek language, it literally means mimic what you see in me. Mimic what you see me do. Do <clears throat> you remember when you were in school? Probably, I'm just looking out over the audience. I think this is going to apply to just about everybody. Do you remember in school that they actually taught you how to write in cursive? They still do? Are you serious? Now, I've, I've been told they don't. They still do an Anderson 1. They still do at her school. Yeah. And I have heard that in most classes, most schools, they, they didn't teach it, but, but now it's back. And what school are you at? And what school are you at? Okay, so Spearman, Hunt Meadows, and... Palmetto. So if you need to send your kids someplace to learn how to write cursive, that's where you do it. You know, a lot of kids growing up, they did not learn how to write in cursive. Do you, do you remember how, how you learned how to write in cursive? Practice, but there was even more than practice. You, you, you had a guide, didn't you? You had this little sheet of paper, and it had these guides, and you followed, you tried to write it the way you saw it, right? They gave, you, they gave you an example. This is how you write a G. This is how you write an S. It was above the blackboard. Yeah, that's right. They had that big strip all the way across the blackboard. A, capital A, little, or little A, capital A. One, one of the other. I don't remember what order it was. It was capital first. Capital A, then little A. Capital B, little B. Makes sense. I don't know. Here's my point. We're about to get off target. Here's my point. The way that you learned how to write cursive was that you had a guide to mimic. You had a pattern to follow. And the only way you knew how to write an A was that you followed that pattern. The only way you knew how to write an S, you followed that pattern. Paul says, if you want to know what it's like to be a Christian, follow the pattern I give you. Wow. I wonder, this is not condemning, this is just to get you to think. I wonder, if I had a brand new Christian, if I could hook him or her up to you and say, now if you want to know what a Christian is like, you just hang out with him for a few days. If you want to know how a Christian lives, you just go with her for a few days. I just, here, here's the assignment. New Christian, here's the assignment. Follow her around and just mimic everything she does. Follow her around and do what? Oh, no. <laughs> Are you starting to feel a little uncomfortable with that assignment? And yet, Paul says, that's exactly what I want you to do. Church, if you need to know what it means to be a follower of Christ, Paul said to the church at Philippi, just, just mimic me. Now, was Paul being conceited? What was Paul doing? Huh? Lead by example, that's good. Why would he have to say this? You need to remember when the letter was written. There's some debate about when you date it, but whether it's the 50s or the 60s or whatever, depending on when you date Philippians, there's a good chance that the Gospels had not even been written yet. We didn't, it's a good chance that people in Philippi didn't even have a 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to go by to find out what a, a follower of Jesus looks like. And even if the gospel had been written, if you have a later date for Philippians, and you say, no, 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 I think Mark was written by that time. Okay, well, let's just say that Mark was written. It's not readily available. You don't go down to the local Lifeway store and pick up a copy of Mark. We don't even have Lifeway stores now. There you go. You don't, you don't Google Amazon and order a copy of Mark. So they, didn't, they, didn't, they did not have what we have. They didn't have the Gospels and the Bible to look at and to understand what a follower of Christ is. And so Paul says to these dear people, let me tell you something. I know this is all kind of new. You haven't been a Christian that long, so if you want to know what a Christian is, just follow my example. And the amazing thing about Paul is that he said that so often. Let's just do a little Bible study for a moment. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says to the church at Corinth, not to the church at Philippi, but to a different group of people, he says to the church at Corinth, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I love the way he put that. Paul didn't just say follow my example. He wasn't being arrogant or he said follow my example. Paul said follow my example as I follow Christ. You follow me as I follow Christ. Paul faces up to the fact that he is an example and he shoulders the responsibility of giving people footsteps to follow. You see, like it or not, you don't have a choice between being an example. You just have the choice of being a good one or a bad one. So let me show you some some more scriptures. First, uh, uh, Titus, go over to the right. Find Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Paul is speaking to <clears throat> here to, to Titus, and he says, In everything, set them an example by, being, by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. In everything, set them an example. Uh, looking first over to the left, go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Paul was writing here to a young preacher, a young, uh, in our day when I was growing up, we'd call him a young preacher boy. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, writing to young Timothy, he says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Do you know 
our problem in, in the church so often is that we want to do just the opposite. We want to do something like this. We'll say, you need to do what I say, not what I, not, follow what I say, not what I, how I live. Do what I say, not, not don't, don't pay attention to how I'm living, but do what I say. And, and our, what we say is hollow because people see the way we live. Let me show you one other scripture. And then we'll, we'll go on. One other scripture, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three. <clears throat> um, several scriptures here I want you to read. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses six and seven, and verse nine. <clears throat> In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers. Keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how we taught you to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. And then skip down to verse 9. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow you might want to write down on your notes, the Christian life is caught as much as it is taught. The Christian life is caught as much as it is taught. Part of the way that we learn about being a Christ follower is by watching other Christ followers. You've heard me say over and over and over from, since I've been here so long, you've heard me talk about my mom and dad. And they did sit me down and they did teach me things. They did, you know, we, we had times together where they taught me the Word of God. But I learned more about being a Christ follower by watching them, by following their example, than by any time where they sat me down and said, okay, now Keith, a Christian does this and the Bible says this. We had some of those times, but not nearly as often as me just watching them live their life and me mimicking what I saw in them. Now, here's the reason all of this is important. You need to make sure that you're not sliding backwards. You need, to, you need to make sure that you're not getting lazy. You need to make sure that you're not giving up. You need to make sure that you're giving others around you an example to follow. Be a good example to your kids. Be a good example to your grandkids. Be a good example to the people you work with. Be a good example to your neighbors. Be a good example, especially to new Christians that you meet. <clears throat> you don't get to choose whether or not you're a good example, or whether or not you're an example, but only whether or not you're a good or a bad one. Now, any questions about that so far? We, All right, so I've given you, I think, four things. Why did Paul write the letter? I've given you four things. Let me go to the fifth one and uh, spend a little bit of time here because this one is, is so central to the letter uh, that we're looking at of Philipp, uh, Philippians. So go back to the book of Philippians. And I want you to go to chapter 3, and then I'm going to give you the fifth reason Paul wrote this letter. Philippians chapter 3. Here's the fifth reason Paul wrote the letter, and, and this is a big reason. 
Paul wrote Philippians to warn the church about two groups that could harm their ministry. I'll say that again. Paul wrote this letter to warn the church about two groups that could harm their ministry. Now, get ready to take some notes and and try to walk with me through all of this. Uh, We'll take a few minutes here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a what, church? It's a safeguard for you. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is something you've heard before, but you need to hear it again because I need to make sure you get this. It's better for me to repeat it than for you to forget it. It's better for me to repeat it than you don't know it. And so what I'm about to say, you probably have heard before, but I need to say it again. It It is a safeguard for you. Paul here has the heart of a pastor writing to his congregation, trying to safeguard them, trying to make sure that They're not led astray. So then he says in verse 2, watch out for those dogs. He wasn't talking about the Georgia Bulldogs. Watch out for those dogs. And then he describes who they are. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Would you say that Paul was very happy with these people? No. In fact, Paul probably was pretty angry at these people, and the reason he was angry at this pe- these people because he saw the potential that they had to cause problems in the church and to really hurt the ministry of the church. And so he uses this first phrase, watch out. Usually when somebody, even in, in using it in English, when we say watch out, uh, we're usually you know, trying to get somebody's attention, right? I mean, they're, they're about to step on a live wire. Watch out. They're about to do something foolish or something that's going to hurt them. They're they're about to, you know, whatever. And and we say, watch out. It's always a warning because we're trying to keep them from experiencing something bad. And Paul uses that same idea when he says, watch out for the dogs. And then he describes who they are, the mutilators of the flesh. He's talking, put this on your notes, uh, or if you're taking notes, he's talking about the legalist. The legalist. Those who say that you have to conform to the law to be a Christian. And specifically here, when he talks about the mutilators of the flesh, he's talking, of course, about those who insist that you have to follow through with circumcision before you can be a Christian. That they, they insist, those who insist on following the Jewish laws and regulations, that's who he's talking about, the legalist. We've talked a lot about that recently, so I'm not going to get too far into that. But then he talks about another group of people. Well, 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 first of all, the legalist, here's the problem with the legalist. This is, it all centers around grace. The one we're going to look at in just a moment as well as, as the legalist. It all centers around grace. The legalist, they don't want anything to do with grace. For the legalist, grace is almost a bad word. For the legalist, it's not about grace, it's about law. You have to obey the law because it is the law of God. And you can't be a child of God without following the law of God. So line up, it's circumcision time. If you're going to be a child of God, guys, line up because you've got to follow the law. And Paul calls those people dogs. 
I mean, he's pretty ticked off at this group, right? You know why? Because they, they said, no, 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 no. It's not about grace. It's about the law. The law of God, okay? It's a legalist. In order, watch this, in order to be one of God's children, you've got to conform. You've got to conform to the Jewish standard. Be a Jew, and if you're a good Jew, you can become a Christian. That's legalist. All right, now, let's go to the next group that Paul is warning them about in this letter. And this one is, we're going to take a few minutes here. Uh, The first ones are called dogs. They're the legalist. The next group, I I simply refer to them, I I call them self-centered. And the term that I'll give them is not legalist, but libertines. And I'll explain that to you. These are are self-centered libertines. Here's how Paul, same chapter, just down to verse 18 and 19. Here's what he says, another warning about this group. Well, let's start at verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Be sure to take note of those who are living according to the pattern we gave you. For, verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now again... Even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Don't miss this this word here. Paul says, I'm telling you again. I've told you many times before, and now I'm telling you again. And this time I'm telling you with tears. Now listen carefully. For the legalists, Paul was angry. He called them dogs. For the libertines... Paul was brokenhearted. And he says, I'm telling you this with tears. Now, look how he describes, and then I'll explain who the libertines are. Verse 18. Many live as enemies of the cross, and he describes them this way. Their destiny is destruction. Their God, little g God, is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Most scholars, this might surprise you, most scholars believe that Paul is talking about people within the church. It doesn't sound like they're people in the church, does it? Look look again at how he describes them. He describes them this way, For I have often told you before, and now say again with tears, many live, this is not just something that they're talking about, this is the way they're living, many live as enemies of the cross. And and he says, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. Paul was probably talking about the libertines, or here's an even bigger word to help you understand these people he's warning against they were also called the antinomians the antinomians anti means against nomos means law they were against the law antinomians against the law now the legalists were for the law that's one group he warned them about then he warns them about the antinomians, the against the law, the, the, the people who were against the law. Antinomians. Now, this, this gets really interesting. 
Here's the reason they were against the law. <clears throat> they said, do you know the gospel? The gospel is that we are saved by grace. Do you, do you remember the legalist? How did they feel about grace? They didn't like it. It's not about grace, it's about the law. Because this is the law of God, and it's obedience to the law of God. The antinomians would say, no, it's not about the law at all. Because if it's about the law, then that's something that you've done. It's about grace. Salvation is by grace. Now that sounds good until you understand they took it a little further than that. They said because salvation is by grace, we don't need to be worried about the law. Because salvation is by grace, basically we can live any way we want to. Because salvation is by grace, we don't even have to be concerned about the moral code of the law. In other words, you got your ticket to heaven, go do anything you want to. And Paul was pulling his hair out saying, whoa, 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 no. So what you have here is two extremes. You have the legalist who said it's all about the law and obedience and the antinomians who said, no, it's not about the law at all. It's about grace. And because it's about grace, go live any way you want to. And Paul understood that both of those had the potential to really damage the ministry of the church. And he describes them this way. You need to understand. Look what he said. He said they are destined for destruction. They're driven by their sensual appetites, I'm paraphrasing, and they're dedicated to material things. Their destiny, verse 19, is destruction. Their God is their stomach, that is, they're driven by appetites. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things or material things. They're dedicated to material things. Someone put it this way, uh, they're dedicated to, to things that have a price tag. They love things that have a price tag. And Paul says, and they're lost. Now, put your finger in Philippians, go to the, to the left. I want you to see this same concept in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. Look at verse 20. The same situation comes up to, uh, at the church at, at Rome. Chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, and then chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, if you're taking notes. He says, the law, here, here we are talking about the law. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, what's that next word? Grace. Grace increased all the more. And the antinomians, the libertines, would say, yes, absolutely. That's what we're talking about. Grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Then Paul comes back to the antinomians, and he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So this, this is something we could spend a lot of time talking about. I was just trying to introduce to you the concept of why the church at Philippi needed this message so desperately because there were two groups of people within the church. Two groups of people within the church, the legalist and the libertines. 
And Paul understood how both of those could hurt and harm the church and its ministry. So he writes this letter trying to help them to understand the true uh, way to live. And that's why, coming back to what we said previously, that's why Paul was so adamant to say, if you need to know what it means to follow Christ, follow my example. Don't follow the legalists. Don't follow the libertines. If you, if you need to know what a follower of Christ looks like and how he or she acts, follow my example. Now, I want to close by going to chapter 4 because there's something in chapter 4 that I wish we had a little bit more time to dig into, but at least we can introduce it to you. Maybe this will be a good thing for you to study this week in your personal study. In chapter 4, the first 10 verses, <coughs> chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, there's a phrase that you will see repeated four times in 10 verses. Scan it real quickly. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. See if you can find a phrase repeated four times in 10 verses. Perfect. You had notes from two years ago when I spoke about this. On a Sunday morning two years ago, I spoke about this. But some of you don't take notes in your Bible, so I thought I'll go ahead and bring it back up again. Uh, the phrase that you see repeated four times is pretty amazing. It's a good way for us to end our study. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should, watch this, stand firm in the Lord. Notice those three words, in the Lord. Then he says in verse 2, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to agree with each other, and there's those three words. In the Lord. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern. The expression in Christ, in the Lord, or in Him occurs 164 times in the letters of Paul. This concept of being in the Lord is, is central to the writings of Paul. It's indispensable to understanding, really, the teaching of the New Testament. I said this two years ago when I preached on this, that you only see the word Christian three times in the entire Bible. Which is mind-boggling, that you only see the word Christian three times in the New Testament or the entire Bible. And yet you see this word, this phrase, in the Lord, or a component of that, 164 times. So this is a pretty important phrase. This is a pretty important concept. So what does it mean? To be in the Lord speaks about our relationship with God and our dependence on God. I think the best way to close this is to have you go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. <clears throat> John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, of course, is speaking. It's the famous teaching about the vine and the branches. And he says in verse 4, Remain in me. 
and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if any man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can, <coughs> you can do nothing. So when we talk about in the Lord, it's talking about your relationship to the Lord and your dependence on him. I'll close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creature, the old has gone, the new has come. So when Paul says to the church at Philippi, Stand firm in the Lord. Don't be misled by the legalist or by the libertines. Stand firm in the Lord. Your relationship with the Lord is paramount in these days. Stand firm in the Lord. Don't be misled by the legalists. Don't be misled by the libertines. Stand firm in the Lord. And oh, by the way, Yodia and Syntyche, you two need to get along with one another. But you're not going to do it on your own because you're so stinking stubborn. So agree with each other in the Lord. We're starting to plow close to the corn now, right? You know what he's saying? He's saying it's not about you. And it's not about you. It's not about what he did or she did or she said or whatever. No, 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 no. He says you've you got to come together in the Lord. Well, I could preach a sermon on that one right there. You've got to come together in the Lord. Because of your relationship with Jesus and because of your relationship with Jesus, you both have a relationship with Jesus. You are sisters in the Lord. So get along with one another. And then the third thing he says, and oh, by the way, rejoice in the Lord. And then he said, now I'll say it again, rejoice. And then he says in, in the verse 10, rejoice greatly. In the Lord. In other words, the Christian life is not supposed to be endured. The Christian life is supposed to be enjoyed. Enjoy your relationship in the Lord. I love the fact that the Bible teaches us again and again that salvation is not just that I believe the right things. Salvation is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And all God's people said... Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight.